we're starting a new series, and this series is called Vertical. Vertical. And the purpose of this series is um, to establish a very clear picture for us of what it looks like when we make it our, our passionate purpose and our passionate priority to love the Lord with all our heart. What does it look like? We talk about it all the time. We study the Bible. We, we talk about what it means to be a Christian. But, but what would it look like if we were completely and totally, individually and as a church, completely given to the Lord? How would that, how would that come across? Now, I don't think any of us has ever seen that because there's always something going on in our lives in any church that's, that's not honoring to the Lord. But, but what would it look like? And, and I want to show over the next uh, seven or eight weeks just how essential that is. And, and to establish that, I, I really would like to lay out a very important goal at the outset. I am hoping and praying that through these studies that we're going to do, that the Spirit of God will use this to seriously rock our world. I, I'm hoping and praying that, that God will confront us, that he'll challenge us, and that he'll provoke us. And I hope he will chip away at our traditions, our experiences, our, our preferences, our biases, and, and I'm even asking him to chip away at our comfort level. Because it is vitally important that we yield ourselves to those conditions at the outset. That, that we're praying the same thing. Lord, we want you to challenge us in ways we've never challenged before. We want you to, to, to chop away at the things that are comfortable to me, the things that I know, the things that I grew up with, the things that I experienced. And, and, and we want you to, to transform us in terms of our thinking and our expectations and our experiences. We want you to do that. Now, if we will pray that and we will get that right, and the Lord actually changes our hearts in these areas that we're going to study. I'm telling you right now, I'm not a prophet, I'm just telling you the truth. It will transform our lives spiritually. It will transform our marriages. It will transform our families. It will transform our church. It will transform our ministry. And to be very blunt, that's necessary. And it's not optional. God needs to do this in our lives. He needs to do this in our church. As we've seen so beautifully displayed this morning, God is worthy of that. The Lord is worthy of our dedication in that way. And people who don't know Christ need to see us living this way. As much as Christianity has been marginalized and, and, and uh, criticized and even legislated against, uh, especially over the last 10 years, this is not a time for us as believers to be reticent or shy. It's not a time for us to shrink back and say, well, we'll just kind of see what happens and we'll figure our way. No, Paul says in 2 Timothy, which is a book about what it means to live in the last days. Paul says in 2 Timothy, God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity and fear. God has given us a spirit of power, which means that we have to be firm in our convictions and we have to be bold in our words and actions because that's when God will be honored and that's when people will be influenced about Christ. So, so the, the thing we need to understand at the outset is this is not about us. This is not about what we're going to receive, what we're going to feel, what we're going to do, how, how this is going to... No, this is all about the Lord. And that's the whole point of vertical living, that it's about glory to the Lord, not glory to us. 
that God is magnified, that God is honored. Not that we're getting attention or we're feeling satisfied or we're feeling better about ourselves. Listen, if you walk with the Lord, you will feel better about yourself. If you walk with the Lord, you will be satisfied. If you walk with the Lord, you will not care about attention. You will want all the attention to go to Him. And we're going to have to remind ourselves of that all throughout these studies because the appeal of pride is so strong and the enemy is certainly going to try to draw us in that way. And then you add to that the problem that that everything, and I think this is a true statement, I don't think it's hyperbole, everything in our culture is not only self-focused, but it's horizontally focused. In fact, it's gotten to the place, I think, where where there's even a greater shift away from long-term thinking and long-term planning to what I want now, what matters now, what I feel now, and, and, and just make it about now. There's no sense of future. Uh, you know that because uh, our generation's not saving. There's no savings account like our grandparents and our parents had. There, there's no long-term planning. There's no future. What's the impact of the actions? What's the impact of my vote? What's the impact of where this legislation's at? There's, there's very little thought of that. It's just what I feel now. So, so the challenge for us in terms of vertical living is not only to do it ourselves, but as it relates to p- talking to people about the gospel, we're talking about being eternally focused. They're not even thinking about tomorrow. So we face a huge challenge that, that people aren't, aren't conditioned to think far ahead. And we're not talking about how you're going to feel tomorrow. We're talking about being eternally secure forever. And people, when you talk about that now, because their attention spans are short, they kind of shut down. They're like, I can't think about that. But that's where we're going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit's work of conviction. It's just our job to live vertically and to speak boldly to people and with love. So let's do some defining this morning, and then we're going to establish the, the most important foundational part of this concept. Let's establish, first of all, what it means when I say living vertically, okay? I want to give you a very simple definition this morning by giving you three phrases, okay? And by the end of the study, and I want, you to, I want you to take some notes through this series, not because I'm talking, that matters not, I hope you don't even hear me, I hope you hear the Spirit. So, but I want you to take some notes because we need to keep reviewing this. And even if you've never taken notes before, even in college and high school, that doesn't matter. There's always a time to change, right? So, so write some things down. Write, write down what the Lord's impressing your heart. But let me give you three sentences that I hope will, will somewhat define what I mean by vertical living, okay? Number one, vertical living means everything we think, say, and do. Everything we think, say, and do is to love and glorify God. Everything that we think, say, and do is to love and glorify God. That's number one. Number two, vertical living means that heaven's values and priorities replace our own. Not not an addition, not off to the side, not this is something I'm going to pour on to what I already have. That our priorities, our values are replaced by God's priorities and values. So first of all, everything we think, say, or do is to love and glorify God. Second, our values and priorities are replaced by heavens. And third, that we're determined, determined to persuade people to trust Christ. Vertical living means we're determined to persuade people to trust Christ. Now, 
it is important when you look at the three things that hopefully you just wrote down, it's important to see that each of those convictions requires a purposeful intentionality. This is not going to happen conditionally. It's not circumstantial. It doesn't happen by having good intentions but poor execution. Well, well, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to hope. No, vertical living is driven by conviction. It's driven by love. And it's empowered by the Holy Spirit as he fills us and controls us. So if we think we're going to live that way, that everything I think, everything I say, everything I do is going to glorify Christ. If we think that'll happen just by accident or by proxy or by kind of figuring out along the way, without conviction and without intentionality, it will not happen. And that is especially true when we come to this first characteristic because this one today is the foundation that will impact every other area of our life. Now, our foundation is either weak or it's strong. It's either built on rock or it's built on sand. There's no middle ground. Either either your foundation is set on the Lord or your foundation is set on yourself. So if this, uh, if we believe that we can build on a, on a foundation that, that's sinking and, and leaking and is cracked and is, is just kind of unsure, we're going to fail. And the efforts that we're going to make are going to be futile because we're going to believe that we actually can build a tall building on a foundation that has no structure. Whenever you look at a building, if you're, you're in Chicago or Milwaukee or somewhere else, and you see when they're starting a building, what do they do? They don't just put on a slab of concrete and say, we're going to build a 100-story building on this slab of concrete. How would that work? Would that, would that work well? You have to dig down, way down, so far down that you're surprised how far down they're digging. And then they have to build foundational supports and get everything into the bedrock, into the limestone. They've got to put supports and anchors in so when the weight of that building is sitting on that foundation, it won't move. Same thing with us. If we think we can build and be built up in Christ on a foundation that has no structure and no support and is on sand, that structure is going to fall over. We've got to be built on the rock of Christ. And if we think we can do it any other way, it'll be like trying to cure a major disease with Band-Aids and ibuprofen. It's just not going to work. Now, the foundation, and this is our, this is our first characteristic we're going to develop over the next two months, about seven or eight characteristics of what it looks like to live vertically. Here's number one, and this one, again, is, is the base bedrock for everything else. The foundation for vertical living is that we have to build new altars, and we have to rebuild what's broken. Now, I'll explain that in a minute. We're going to look at two texts to do that, but just get that in your heart, write that in strong words, that we have to build new altars, and we have to rebuild what's broken. Now, that takes us to our text here in Genesis chapter 12, and in a couple minutes, we'll move over to 1 Kings 18. But Genesis chapter 12 is where Abraham receives the covenant from God that he will be given a land, and he will be a great nation, and that God will bless that nation. Three parts to the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. You'll get a land, your seed will be that you'll have a great nation, and you'll be blessed by me. Okay, so we get down to, to that covenant, verses 1 to 3, and then 
Abraham goes forth, and he, we saw this a couple weeks ago. He's going with Lot. We saw them separate. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to look at verse 6. No, excuse me, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, we studied Abram a few weeks ago, and when we did that in chapter 13, we said we'd come back to this concept that everywhere Abraham went as he followed the Lord, every time he settled in, he built an altar. We see it four different times in the book of Genesis that he did it twice here in chapter 12. He does it again in chapter 13 after he and Lot separate. And then again he builds one in chapter 26 when God says, you need to sacrifice Isaac to me. And Abraham goes up and he builds an altar and he lays his son on the altar. The first altar we see being built in scripture was by Noah after he came off the ark and the flood subsided that he built an altar to the Lord. So there's Noah, then Abram builds four altars, and then after him his descendants build altars. Isaac builds an altar in chapter 26, and Jacob, his grandson, builds an altar in chapter 35. And all throughout the Old Testament, the pattern is repeated. Moses builds an altar, Aaron builds an altar, Balaam builds seven altars, Joshua builds an altar, the tribes of Israel build an altar, Gideon, Saul, David, Solomon, Elijah, Urijah, and, and a couple other people whose names we don't know, built altars to the Lord. In all, I counted at least 28 different times where somebody built an altar to the Lord. And that doesn't include the ones that were in the tabernacle and were in the temple. Anytime you see something happen 28 times in Scripture, we should say to ourselves, what's going on there? Why is everybody building an altar? What, what, what is going on that the people are doing this? Why do so many do it? And what's the significance for our lives? Well, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 18, a passage we know well. And here we're going to see a contrast between the great beginning that Israel had when they built 28 altars and everybody was worshiping the Lord and sacrificing to the Lord until over time that passion starts to deteriorate. And, and now we get to 1 Kings chapter 18, and we see that, that the spiritual condition of the nation, which was so well exemplified by the men who were going before and were building altars to the Lord, now the spiritual condition of the nation has changed. Look at chapter 18 and verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired, notice that word, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood, and cut the ox in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar 
and he also filled the trench with water. And we know what happened next. Elijah prayed, fire came down from heaven. Now here we see a change. Because in the early days of Israel, people were building altars left and right. People were coming and worshiping the Lord, and they were sacrificing. But when we get to verse 30 of 1 Kings 18, which was not far down the road from David and Solomon, now we've got Elijah having to repair, look at the verse, having to repair the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. And the reason it had been torn down is the people had stopped building places of worship and sacrifice to the Lord. And instead of that, they had torn down the altars that were made to the Lord, and they had built new altars, but the new altars weren't toward the Lord. The new altars were to Baal and to other false gods. And their hearts had rebelled and wandered from the Lord so far that they had replaced the Lord God, the true God, with inferior gods which were made of stone and of wood. And that's the whole point that Elijah has in setting up this contest. He says, you know what, we've gotten off track. God sent three years of drought to prove that he's God, but you still haven't gotten it. So Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. You guys go first. You, you, the ones who, who built these false altars and worship these false gods, you go first. You know the story. And, 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 and you take your turn, and you try to get fire from heaven. The one that gets fire from heaven, their God's the God. Oh, that's great, Elijah. All the people of the nation are gathered. Baal and Je- uh, Ahab and Jezebel are sitting there. And they cry and scream for six hours and cut themselves and yell, Oh, great, Baal, send fire from heaven. And you know what they get? They get nothing. No sound, no fire, no response, no proof, no anything. And now, look back at the text, because what Elijah does next is very, very important. He doesn't build a new altar. He rebuilds what had been torn down and neglected. And then he prays. And he says, God, show that you're God. Show that you're the true God. And God sends an immediate fire from heaven. Now, we're seeing two concepts here between what happens with Abram and the others and what happens with Elijah. And this is what we're going to develop this morning because it directly applies to our lives. First, we're seeing that Abram and the others built new altars. They built new altars when they were led by the Lord or had been blessed by the Lord or wanted to worship and praise the Lord. Every time that happened, they built an altar. They built a place of of worship, a place of sacrifice, and a place of praise to God. Elijah has to come along, and he has to rebuild what was broken, the altars that were broken, to offer a sacrifice for their sin and to restore worship. I want you to remember those two concepts. We're going to come back to them in just a minute. Building new altars and rebuilding what's broken. But before we look at that application, let's understand why the altar existed in the first place, okay? Time to take notes again. There were two purposes for the altar. The first purpose for the altar was that it was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of sacrifice, and there were six different offerings, and I debated telling you this because I don't want to give you a bunch of lists this morning, but, but it's important, especially because we had communion this morning, and that's the way the Lord works with the timing of that. There were six different offerings made on the altar. And I'll run through them quickly. The first was the burnt offering. The burnt offering was a voluntary act of worship 
to show devotion to God. It was also a place that was used as, as an atonement or payment for sin. So offering number one was the burnt offering. The next two offerings were the grain and drink offerings. And the grain and drink offerings were, were where the fruit of the harvest was brought and it was given to the Lord to thank him for his provision and his blessing. We've got the burnt offering, we've got the grain offering, and we've got the drink offering. The fourth offering was the peace offering. And the peace offering was where a spotless animal and bread, think about this now, what you just did, a spotless animal and bread were sacrificed to give thanks to the Lord, and part of the sacrifice was eaten. Making peace with God. The fifth offering, Jesus wasn't done yet, the fifth offering was the sin offering. And the sin offering was an atonement for sin and a cleansing from sin. And then the sixth offering was the trespass offering. The trespass offering was another atonement sacrifice, but the purpose of this was to reimburse the offended party and provide cleansing. Now think about all six of those, because all six of them relate directly to Jesus. All six of them were a picture of what God was going to do through Christ and how perfectly and how powerfully Christ's sacrifice satisfied all of those offerings and how all of them are symbolized in what we just celebrated. What did we celebrate? We celebrated communion. What did we have? We had bread and we had the fruit of the vine. We had an understanding of the sacrificial spotless lamb who made payment for our sins in order to cleanse us. In other words, we had an understanding this morning of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the drink offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering all in one table. That's an amazing picture. And in response to that, as those who have received his grace and been transformed, now God says, I have satisfied, I've made the payment for you, I've taken the sacrifice upon myself so you can be free now to live a completely different way that I have provided for you. Now, here is your calling. Your calling is to sacrifice back to me. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we know it well. We're to present our bodies as a, tell me, living sacrifice. Well, that's a lot. I don't know if I want to do that. Look at what Jesus just did for us. Not even just the cross and the tomb. He was fulfilling Old Testament law of saying, I'm going to be the spotless lamb. I'm going to be the fruit of the vine. I'm going to be the bread of life. I'm going to make the payment for sin. I'm going to cleanse you from sin. I'm going to secure you and forgive you forever. I'm the one that's doing that. Now in response, Christian, who I've saved to the uttermost and have, and have transformed and have filled with my spirit and have adopted as my own, now here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be a living sacrifice. How do you do that? By being holy and acceptable and pleasing to me in all that you do. And we can't say, well, that's, that's unreasonable. That's, that's too much, God. No, he says, it's your reasonable act of worship. You know, it's, it's very reasonable for me to expect that. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that by building new altars. What do I mean by that? I mean we have to continually sacrifice ourselves. We have to place our sinful desires 
and our selfish priorities and our self-interested will, and we have to take them to the Lord and say, I surrender these to you, listen, without any regret. I surrender these to you without claiming and still holding and hoping you won't take that away from me. And please, God, I'm willing, but really don't. He says, you give them all to me. Jesus went to the cross without regret. He went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. Why do we have to build new altars? Because when we sacrifice, when we lay our lives out before the Lord, that brings us joy. So every single day, today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every day we need to look for fresh ways to sacrifice something to the Lord. We have to be intentional about giving up control and and asking him to cleanse what's impure in our lives. And that's what's pictured with all these 28 altars that were built in the Old Testament. It's why every time Abram went to a new place, He built an altar to the Lord so he wouldn't fall into the self-centered trap that Lot fell into. Remember Lot? Abram says, take the land, take which one. Lot chooses selfishly. Abram says, that's fine. God says, it's all yours anyway. Abram builds an altar. Abram goes to the next stop. He builds an altar. He goes to the next spot. He builds an altar. What's Lot doing? He's edging closer and closer to Sodom. We have to be intentional about being cleansed by the Lord. What does that mean? It means you and I have to take a very honest and aggressive evaluation of our life. And we have to ask the Holy Spirit to give us great insight and to identify what needs to be sacrificed, what needs to be handed over to the Lord. It may be something very subtle, or it may be something that you know right now sitting there going, yeah, he's talking about that. It may be the subtlety of pride the subtlety of arrogance, the subtlety of thinking we know best. It may be a vice that you can't give up. It may be an attitude that you want to maintain, a lack of forgiveness. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to go through the list. I'm just saying there's something that has to be sacrificed to the Lord. And as we hand that over to the Lord, we're not only cleansed of its presence, but God cleanses us of the desire for its presence. See, I think that's where so many people get caught this morning. It's not that we don't know that we need to overcome the sin. The struggle is we still have the desire for sin. And I found the more I give it up and the more I sacrifice it to the Lord, the more the desire goes away. People say, oh, that doesn't really happen. I'm telling you it does. You start to make intentional choices in your life and say, I am not going to allow that in my life. I am not going to do that anymore. I'm going to give it up. That the longer you do that, the easier it is. But when you fall back into that, you feel horrible. Now, as we do that, we have to come to the place of realizing that sacrifice is necessary. There's absolutely zero point of building an altar unless you intend to make a sacrifice. So why don't we build altars? Because we don't want to sacrifice. In 1 Samuel 24, 24, you can write it down, look at it later. David had built an altar, and someone who was indebted to him said, hey, I tell you what, I know you're about to offer a burnt offering. Here's what I want to do for you. I want to provide the sacrifice. Let me give you what you need, so you don't have to take out of your stock. 
I will give you the ox and all the stuff you need to make the sacrifice. It'll be my gift to you because I'm so grateful to you. You don't have to provide it. And here's what David said. No. He said, I will buy it from you because I will not offer a burnt offering that costs me nothing. 1 Samuel 24, 24. I will not offer a burnt offering that doesn't cost me. See, our lives are a living sacrifice. We have to surrender to the Lord, and that is going to cost us. So that's the first component. There has to be sacrifice. The second purpose of building an altar is it was a place where God's presence would appear. God's presence would come and appear at the, off, at the altar, and he would accept the offering. And as he accepted the offering, if it was a, the right attitude, then, then he would provide new leading and new blessing. That's why Solomon, when he built the temple, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies because the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence and God's mercy. So when they would offer the sacrifices on the, on the temple altars, God's presence would fill the place, and then they would praise him for his love and his provision. Now, how does that apply to us? Because we don't have a temple to go to where there's a holy of holies in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, we're promised that the Holy Spirit of God indwells and seals who? Us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now we have to be holy and pure before him. Because if we're holy and pure before him, God's presence will invade. You and I know, come on, we know the sin that quenches the spirit. We know when we're not studying and growing in our faith. And we get dry and we need to be filled by the Spirit. So as we build new altars, as we surrender those things to the Lord, as we sacrifice and get our hearts and minds right, what does God do? He then fills what has been taken out with his own Spirit, and then he helps us and leads us and blesses that. But for that to happen, the altar has to be a priority. It is not a coincidence that whenever someone moved Whenever someone in street received instruction from the Lord, whenever they were blessed by the Lord, whenever they wanted to praise the Lord, whenever they wanted to sacrifice their will before the Lord, what did they do? They built an altar. And if you and I are looking for the same help from the Lord and the same blessing from the Lord and his leading and his passion and his commitment, whatever it is, then that's the place to start because the altar is the place of God's mercy. It's the place where we we receive the payment that God made for sin and he pays it and he forgives us and he cleanses us and he gives us power and strength. And when you get power and strength from the Lord, your passion gets restored. Being in the presence of Jesus causes us to evaluate things differently. That's why people stay away from church. That's why they miss church. That's why they prioritize other things. So their sin and their pride and their apathy wasn't confronted. Listen, if we wanted to really walk with the Lord, we'd be in the church every day. We'd be in the presence of God every day. We wouldn't have to think, should I do devotions today? Should I carve out 20 or 30 minutes out of my schedule to do that? Or should I watch TV? Or should I rest? Or should I go for a walk? No, if, if we really wanted God to cleanse us and purify us 
and, and to strip us of self and make us like him, we would never want to be out of the presence of the Lord. Now that leads into the last concept. We see the importance of new altars where we make sacrifices and we experience the presence of the blessing of the Lord. But what about the broken altars in our lives? What about the part of our lives where, where we've neglected the Lord and where we've replaced the Lord with false gods? See, broken altars symbolize spiritual rebellion and neglect. Look back at the text in 1 Kings 18 because it's exactly what happened with Israel. And, and you know what's frightening about it? God had sent three years of drought. Drought in the, in the Bible is always a picture of spiritual dryness. It's not just there's no rain and there's no mist. Drought is always a picture of spiritual neglect. And for three years, Israel didn't have a drop of rain. They didn't have a storm cloud in the sky. Everything had dried up. The rivers were dried up. The brooks were dried up. The lakes were dried up. Everything was barren and dusty. And you know what? That still hadn't gotten their attention. How many times, how many difficulties, how many trials... Do, do we have that we ignore or we explain away instead of recognizing that God is saying, you, Paul Rhodes, need to repent and rebuild the altars in your life that are broken. And even when Elijah comes and challenges them for it, meaning that they heard the word of God spoken directly to them, they still didn't believe. You know, some people hear the word of God week after week after week after week after week, and it hasn't changed them a drop. They haven't become more holy. They haven't become uh, more uh, victorious over sin. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. Day after day, week after week, they heard the word of God. They saw the altars being broken down. They heard the prophet talking. They saw that there was no rain. And clearly that meant God was ticked off. But they didn't move. And sometimes when I'm counseling people or I'm looking at people that are never struggling, I, I, I kind of say to myself, and I don't say this with any joy, what's it going to take to get your attention? At what point is it going to click? You know what? This is not just a bad time in my life. This is the Lord's discipline because all the altars in my life are broken. And it wasn't for Israel until God dramatically disproved their gods and prove that he is God, that they turned. And even that didn't last long. In fact, they ended up going into captivity pretty much soon after this because they went right back to neglecting God and letting the altars being broken down and building false altars. And that'll happen to us if we allow the altars in our life to stay broken. If you allow, if your relationship with the Lord this morning is weak and it's immature and you're allowing that to happen, if, if sin is still controlling you in some way and you're still not only allowing it but you're embracing it and you're continuing to pursue false gods instead of the living and true God, all the fire from heaven is not going to convince you because the people stood there and they watched the prophets of Baal for six hours with nada. Nada. Elijah pours 12 buckets of water on top of his altar so there's water in a moat around his altar. And then he prays one prayer and God sends fire from heaven. It eats the water, it eats the sacrifice, it eats the wood, it even eats the dust. And the people go, oh, 
That must be the true God. And a couple days later, they're back to worshiping Baal. Well, I need a sign from God. And if God would just show me, if God would just get me through this trial, and God would, just, God would just do this, and God would just do this. How many times do we pray that? I remember praying that so many times when I was young. Lord, if you would just do this, oh, I promise I'm going to be so committed to you. And God's like, Paul, seriously, I know you. Soon as things are good, you'll turn back to what you want to do. What's it going to take for us? It is so vital. Listen, I'm, I'm almost done. It is so vital to build and rebuild. Because if we are not spending time with the Lord and our heart is not right with the Lord, there will be no fire. There will be no passion. There will be no desire and love for the Lord. Why? Because fire only comes from the Lord. And that fire was not going to fall in 1 Kings 18 until the altar was repaired. So we shouldn't expect God's power and God's sufficiency and God's manifest presence in our lives unless we are willing to sacrifice ourselves and ask God to cleanse us and lay ourselves before him and say, God, I am yours. No conditions, no hesitations, no qualifications. I am yours. When that happens, the fire will fall, but not until. And if you're looking for God to be powerful, and I'm looking for God to be powerful in my life, or in this church, or in my ministry, or in my marriage, or in my family, and I'm not willing to do that, nothing's going to happen. Do you know in Leviticus 6, 9, the high priest's job, God says, here's your job, high priest. Your job is to make sure the fire on the altar doesn't go out. You got one job, high priest. Don't let the fire go out. Why? Because you never know when there needs to be another sacrifice. And you need a constant reminder of the importance of the altar. I'll give you an illustration and I'll be done. David Wilkins, Wilkerson was a great man of God. He died a couple years ago. But he was, a, he was a pastor in Manhattan. If you've ever seen the old movie, The Cross and the Switchblade, about Nicky Cruz, David Wilkerson was the, was the pastor. Well-known preacher, impacted thousands and thousands of lives for Christ. But... One day after he had been studying and doing sermon prep, he came out of his study and he was in a very grouchy mood. And he was frustrated with ministry and just frustrated with all of it. You, you have those days as a pastor. And he instantly made the environment of his house unhappy. He was grouchy, he was uptight with his kids, he was kind of mean to his wife. And his wife came up to him and imagine all the responses you could give at that point. Snap out of it, get with it, what's wrong with you? You know, the responses that I would probably have. She looked at her husband and she said, please go back and spend time with the Lord. See, she must have sensed that in getting caught up with the stress of ministry, and instead of studying to be fed, he was studying to teach and be refreshed. I mean, studying to teach. That, that Pastor Wilkerson had allowed his fire to flicker. So he went back in his study, and he rebuilt his altar, and he came out passionate, full of the Holy Spirit. See, when we allow the fire to kind of burn out a little bit, and we say, well, why isn't God helping me? Well, are you rebuilding the altars?
are, are you cleansing yourself? Are you, are you asking God to remove what's hindering the fire? See, when we get our personal altars right, listen now, when we get our personal altars right, then everything will follow. Our marriages will be healed and strengthened. Our families will be unified and loving. Our kids will be influenced by our witness. Our ministry will be powerful and effective. When you get the personal altar right, everything follows. But when the personal altar is wrong, as was the case with Israel, then everything follows that. Well, my marriage is struggling right now, and my wife doesn't like me and doesn't respect me. All right, then my first question is, what's your personal altar look like? Is there a bunch of sin that's not confessed? Is there a bunch of anger in you? Are there things that are, that are broken down that you're not repairing? What, what's the deal? Because I'm not going to try to solve the interpersonal communication problems between you and your wife. I'm going to ask you, first of all, where are you spiritually? Because that's what everything rests on. Well, my kids hate my guts, and they don't want to listen to me, and they're, they're wayward in sin. All right, what example have you given them? Do they see a personal altar in your life? Well, people at work criticize me, all right? Is that because they see the personal altar in your life and they're opposing you like they oppose Jesus? Or is it because they know that you're a pushover? Everything comes back to our altar. Is it built? Are we building new ones? And are we building what's broken? Putting a priority on our relationship with the Lord. Placing sin and selfishness on the altar with open confession, open repentance, saying, Lord, cleanse me and change my heart. Spending time in the presence of the Lord and presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. What, what are the altars in your life? I want you to evaluate that this week. I'm going to evaluate this week for myself. Are we altar-less? Is there, is there nothing? Or is everything just broken down? Or are they places of renewal and refreshing and strength? Let's close our eyes.